This panel discussion was recorded at the recent Western Australian Brewers Association conference in Perth. Brews News was able to attend to host and record these panels thanks to the generous support of Bintani. And we thank Bintani for their support, not only of us, but also those brewers in attendance at the conference and those unable to attend in person. Bintani, supplying the brewing industry with a wide range of quality brewing ingredients since 1995. Well, thank you, everyone. This one is rather appropriately, when you look at the panel that we've assembled, is everything old, new again. The thinking behind this panel was, over the last 20 years of the craft beer movement, we've seen an acceleration in terms of innovation. And over the last particularly five or six years, the style development that has come up, the way that brewers have been pushing boundaries, the way that we've seen hybridization of styles, it has been a very exciting time for the, for the beer drinker, but are we starting to see the early signs that there could be some exhaustion, um, palate fatigue, or other things creeping in? And will we start to see a flight back to some of the classic beer styles? To discuss this issue uh, with me, we have on the far right, Brendan Barris, uh, the founder of Feral Brewing, and uh, currently looking for interesting projects. We have uh, Brian Fitzgerald from Artisan Brewing and Sean Simons from White Lakes Brewing. Thank you very much for joining us. Big round of applause for our panel. <laughs> Brendan, is there any truth to the rumour that when you um, sold your brewery, it was because you saw the coming apocalypse of hazy um, IPAs and uh, you know, styles that you just could never see yourself making? Uh, there's no truth to the rumour. Um, I wish I could. I wish I was, had that much foresight, um, but that's where we find ourselves now, and I guess timing was good. As somebody who's observing the industry, not necessarily being of the industry, what's your observation of the last four or five years of where beer styles have gone? Broadly, I don't think it's changed a lot. I think we've now got a subset of, of IPAs. Um, I think if, you, if the broad hoppy march goes on and on and on, um, and there's just now some new subsets within that um it's kind of how i see the hazy juicy thing i guess in terms of why they're so prolific this will sound bad um they they're somewhat easy and certainly somewhat easier to make a reasonable example of them not an excellent example but a, a reasonable and an okay acceptable example of, of a hazy because there's lots of places to hide in that in that beer, in terms of, even if you just look at the description in the style guideline for hazy, in fact, any hoppy beer for that matter, lots of places to hide. You know, it, can, it almost sounds like a lambic. It can be garlic and onion and diesel and, you know, all those are acceptable. Um, and sulfur compounds and all that stuff is, is okay. So I kind of put the, the, the march of the hoppy down to it's okay to get something that's reasonable. Um, it's very, very difficult to make great lager. Um, it's very, very difficult to make okay lager as well. Much harder than okay. And, and I take your point, and that's one of the criticisms that's often labelled at the brewing of those beers, but clearly there is an audience for them, and ultimately brewers will make beers that a market is calling for. I, th I think it's consumer-driven. They're not going to be made if there's not consumers pulling them off shelves, as simple as that. It's not... This is, it's pulled. It's not being pushed, I don't think. Um, but I don't understand the hazy bit. <laughs> Brian, just to set the scene, maybe tell us a little bit about your approach to brewing, because is it, is it fair to say that you are a lover of classic styles? Yes. 
So um, it's interesting hearing what Brendan's saying and did a little research before coming here today looking at world beer cup styles. When I, when I graduated from brewing school 20 years ago, I went into a brewery and started making lagers as my first beer. But uh, there we aged them for three months. It was a minimum that we never looked at speeding up the process or anything. Um, but these were a lot of classic styles, Maybachs and, and uh, Bohemian Pilsners and that kind of thing. So, so I really enjoyed it. Uh, even though the brewery was called St. Arnold Brewing in, in, in uh, Houston, I said, uh, interestingly, you're not brewing any Belgian beers. And uh, for me, that was the big thing. When I went through brewing school, I came out, my other, the other students were interested in making IPAs and hoppy beers. And for me, I said, did you miss the chapter on yeast? This is really exciting stuff. <laughs> and so, uh, so that's how I approached it, was, was going to Belgium and, and looking at what they were doing there and finding very interesting things. And how about you, Sean? What, what's your observations on the, the rapid evolution of beer styles uh, that, that have emerged over the last you know, half decade to decade? I think, um, I, I mean, I, I don't think there'd be a tap room out there that wouldn't tell you that their, um, their biggest seller, if, or, or certainly in their top two, is probably the lager that they make or the Kolsch that they make. Um, because, you know, that's what sells the volume. That's what um, makes the money and is the engine room, really, for the brewery to do all this other, you know, this interesting stuff. I think that, um, you know, a, div a difficult thing for breweries as we move forward into the next sort of decade is that um, the cost to get to, to market for different styles and getting something that, you know, it, it's okay to create all this different stuff and getting something to stick is um, is a real challenge, particularly in the retail space. Um, you know, creating something that's just for your tap room is very easy. Um, putting it on tap, more difficult. There's not a lot of real estate out there, but um, getting, um, you know, getting a packaged beer to um, not just be a one-off release or, a, you know, a limited release and then getting um, pull-through is, is, is a real challenge, particularly from a, a cost point of view. Mm. There was a lot of discussion during COVID particularly that there was people wanted security of things that they knew, but we haven't really seen that so much in craft beer in a lot of ways because I, I, I think the iteration of beer style has gone even faster where you've got brewers talking about making 200 beers a year um, and you know, releasing 200 beers a year if they've particularly got multiple venues. It, it, my question is, is that sustainable, Brendan, do you think? Look, there's a, there's a model for everyone. Um, I don't know... If every brewery tried to do 200 beers a year, then that's not sustainable. But if that's your thing to do small amounts of lots of different beers, there is a spot for some people to do that. And if they do them all well, then that's great. Um, if their model is some type of size and scale and um, to do that broader distribution into uh, a market you're going to have to find a champion amongst those 200 and get behind it and hope that others get behind it for you as well. Sean? Yeah, I, I guess at um, White Lakes, we always, we always set out not to actually compete in um, a, a fishbowl of, of 50, 70, uh, or if you include the eastern states, you know, hundreds of breweries that are all bringing out these different styles. And we, we saw a... Um, uh, an easier road, I guess, or a more significant opportunity in actually 
um, competing with the bigger guys and, and putting our effort in, um, in building a brewery that had a little bit of extra technology and um, it was um, sort of built around, around brewing lagers and brewing beers that were more difficult to make um, to compete against the, the majors and, and to sort of take a slice of the pie that, um, that was easier to grab rather than being... Um, um, than fighting against all of our, uh, our brothers. As somebody who uh, fell in love with Matilda Bay Redback back in the uh, 80s, the first craft beer I ever had, and found it very hard to go back to lagers afterwards, and you, you had beers like uh, Alpha Pale Ale and Little Creatures that really kick-started the craft beer industry. I saw the excitement that was created when people tried those beers as being the harbinger of a completely different beer industry that, you know, in 10, 15 years' time, everyone will be drinking pale ales and things like that. And the needle seemed to freeze at about 10 to 15% on craft, and we haven't found it easy to, to move that too much. There's uh, probably been bleeding, you know, in, into the mainstream of the, the golden ales, you know, the 150 Lashes-style golden ale, but lager still dominates. Um, do you, the three of you have any insights as to why that might be? You know, was craft beer never really for the masses? You know, hoppy craft beer never really for the masses. Yeah, well, it, it's interesting you say that because I mean, it was in the it was in back in the thirties when the majority of beer, you know, nineteen thirties, the majority of beer drunk in Australia was still ales, and it wasn't until refrigeration and um, we were able to develop these colder styles which were crisper and more refreshing and it was really about the temperature here that I think that they took off and the ales fell away and I think that um, you know Australia as a, as a culture still sees that as being the you know that refreshing um, beverage that goes along with the meal and, and um, is um, and something to have with your mates so um, it's always going to be there I think um, I, I mean, for me, it's always it's always going to be about drinkability and and repeatability. So, um, regardless of whether you've made a triple twisted IPA and with all the hops in the world, you can have one and 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 think that that's that's really interesting. And you can see what the brewer's trying to do. But if you're not going to be having three or four, um, or you know, you put it down, you go, yeah, I can see what the brewer's trying to do, but I don't want another one. Then that's where it, 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 it stops, and that's not going to be a successful brand. So, Brian, did you want to weigh in there? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with Sean. What he's saying there, and, and uh, one of the things that I remember studying uh, the early larger lager breweries was they just wanted to make something clean and drinkable, and it was that cleanness that they often looked at, and that meant removing a lot of flavor and complications of the beer. So it was something that was easy drinking and something you could drink a lot of. So. We saw ABVs come down and, and more adjuncts being used and to increase that drinkability. Um, but I like the return to uh, standard loggers now, full malt loggers, which are a really exciting space. Brendan? Uh, yeah, there, I guess, is IPA or hoppy beer, pale or whatever, um, for the masses? Possibly not. I mean, still sitting well under 20% craft in the US, well under. Um, and you know the numbers of what we are here in craft. Um, is 
is there a moment where it, where it, um, or is there an opportunity for it to continue to grow? Yes, there's still a lot of work to do in terms of that beer being more for effect rather than flavour. You know, it's old chestnut, but still in Australia, most people that the majority of beer consumers are doing it for effect rather than flavour. So that's the old consumer edu education piece that never ends. Um, it's not going to. I don't see it magically running up to 50% or it's just a long, slow burn and um, with backing the diversity of what we do and people having choice, they won't all choose the same thing and that's really what uh, craft is given the consumer is the, the choice rather than just yellow um, and a bit fizzy and not very flavoursome. But that in itself, there was such a reaction against the fizzy yellow liquid, as it, as it used to be, that, that was derided that brewer, breweries would almost refuse to make a, a, a lager because it was so derided. And now we are seeing a heavy uh, uptick of not just pilsners, you know, the, 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 the craftier, uh, more assertive lager styles. We're seeing brewers who are proudly making... Mexican rice lagers, you know, and, and corn lagers and things like that, that was exactly what spawned the revolution, for want of a better word. Yeah, I, and I, can, I understand why um, lager was a no-go zone initially. Um, like, we're still kind of growing into our pants a bit. And if we were making the same beer as the, the well-known existing um, two brewers in the market, then we weren't any different. So until we kind of were accepted as to what we were and we're a real thing and we do this, this, this and this and we can do lager really well also. Um, it would have just been another explanation, another bit of communication, education that you, you would have to do when, when you would, you know, early doors, you were walking into a place and you might say that you're a craft brewer and they'd look at you like you had a couple of heads. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. I think I think that it had to craft had to establish itself as this thing that that was actually producing quality hoppy ales to differentiate it from. You know, the, there's no doubt that a, a, a big brewery um, and the guys that work in it, they're all passionate. They all love beer and they make a lot of beer really quickly at immaculate quality, and that's really hard to compete with. So. Um, craft had to establish itself as this different thing and higher quality thing um, uh, before coming back to lagers I think and, and because they are more, more difficult to make I think that you're right if, if we, everyone had gone out trying to make lagers against the big guys craft would have never become anything but I don't know. Brian? Yeah, so, um, sorry just before the uh, coming here I, I didn't get a chance to compile statistics from okay. the AIBA but I got some from the World Beer Cup Number one, number of most entered categories, IPA. Number two, juicier, hazy, pale ale, IPAs. Number three, German-style Pilsner. Wow, that was uh, incredible. Then four was wood and barrel-aged strong stout. And then international Pilsner or international lager. And then Munich Hellas, number six. So three of the top uh, six there. And, all uh, having been in the US for that, every brew pub had a Pilsner on and a lager, um, and they were really good. So, so the quality was there. Is, is that one of the things that allows, to take up Brendan's point, there was a, a aversion to making lagers because you're competing with the big two, and how do you do that to some extent on price point? Um, what allows small brewers to compete against the big two on their 
terms these days. Yeah, I think it comes down to an experience. You go into a brew pub and you're going to get your IPAs and your hazy IPAs and something that differentiates them from the marketplace. But if you bring in a lager and someone comes in and says, oh, I don't drink pale ale, I'm a lager drinker, and then you've got to give them something that's going to deliver. So I think it's all part of that experience. But uh, as brewers, we all love lagers. <laughs> Maybe I'm looking at the wrong thing in those statistics, but when I hear that statistics about IPA and hazies, you hear that they're the most entered, highly competed in segments, and yet they're small niches in, in the market still. So it, it, if you've got too much competition in a small niche, um, it, I would imagine that it would be making it a fairly challenging place to be. Yeah, I think it would be. Um, but one of the beauties I see is that the, the hop growers are making something different and brewers are making blends to make different flavors, whether citrus or tropical or could be uh, any range of flavors. And you see these words pop up now caddy and diesel and onion, it was like, oh, that's delicious. <laughs> we wouldn't have thought that. Well, then, then again, there's, there's wet dog and, uh, you know, you know wet, wet dog and farmyard and horse blanket, um, and, and they're classic beer styles. So it's, you know, just descriptions. We, we, we can acquire a palate for all sorts of things, Brendan. Oh, we can. Um, and I think today we can also, you know, historically beer styles were what they were and tasted the way they were out of necessity, um, whether it was a type of water, so you're not going to try and make lager in the UK with your Burton type water, um, or you didn't understand yeast, so that's why sour beers were made, um, but you know, they learned how to make them stable um, in Belgium, they realised how to, for them to become stable over time, um, but pre-yeast, so we now can do any of those anywhere, we've got the technology now, we can do the Burton water, we can do um, Pilsen water, um, and we understand the microbiology of sour beers, any other beer style we want. Um, that's given the diversity, but the, the, how does the consumer actually want diversity? I guess it's a question like, do we just want some hoppy stuff, some bit of, bit of lager, and maybe but darker beer, I don't think anyone wants wheat beer. Um, but, but is that, is, is that yeah, all? Um, I, there was no way that this wasn't coming around to wheat beer uh, at, 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 at some stage. So it, you, you've addressed the elephant in the room. Um, and the, the, the way that I'm going to um, bring it is I was always amazed that in the early days of feral, feral white, um, a great interpretation of the Belgian wheat beer was your biggest seller um, until Hop Hog came along and uh, Feral White kind of disappeared off the map completely, I think. Um, what is it about wheat beers that they were a foundational style for many craft breweries and they just didn't sell? So going back to when we made Feral White, that was really at the early doors of American hops starting to become available. So there was probably only five or six varieties um, of those maybe only three available in Australia um, and there wasn't really any historical understanding about those beers but there was about wheat beer. People knew that Germans drunk, had been to Oktoberfest and their big frothy glass and um, so there was an understanding there and you could um, reintroduce a small portion of people that knew about it to what they, they'd previously experienced. Um, I mean in, in 
in the case of Feral White you know, falling by the wayside, that was like, like kind of mentioned earlier, it was 100% consumer driven. It's not like the resources got swung into behind this beer and, and left that one to, you know, all by itself. It was 100% consumer choice. And I think in terms of the, the timing for us, it was when, or those two, those two beers, as the hops became more available, we, we used them more and consumers chose them. Sean? The, uh, the wheat beer market, the wheat beer drinker too, is a weird section of the craft beer drinkers. Uh, they seem to be permanently there and they never, you know, they never drink any more or any less you seem to do. Whether you're doing it on draft, you sell one... If you put it on a pub, right, you, you sell one keg a week and every week it'll sell one keg a week, but it won't ever go to two kegs and it'll never go to half a keg, so you don't really need to know what to do it. It's, there seems to be this small section of wheat beer lovers, and it's such a polarising style, but for most people it's just too much, too estuary. Um, I think the biggest curse in the world is to win Abers with a wheat beer. It's just because you can't, you can't market it. <laughs> you can't market it and, um, and actually turn it into anything, uh, anything good. <laughs> but... Um, it is a lovely beer, though. I, you know, some of my favourite um, drinks in the in the hot weather is a is a Belgian wit for sure. Yeah, I, I just wanted to agree with you. I did like red back when it was out, but uh, my epiphany beer. I was in wine before I got into beer. It was a German Hefeweizen, and I'm like, this stuff's great. I never tasted banana and cloves in a way that was made it so delicious. But interesting, Artisan started in 2014 without a, a core range. We, we launched with a farmhouse red that was 8.2%. And we said, we'll just brew all of our favorite Belgian styles and we'll see what sticks. And now we have a core range in a or Malabar Wit or a wheat beer is, is in their core range. And that's what the customers wanted. To stay on the wheat beer theme, how much do you think that because wheat beers were so obviously different from the clean lagers that they were distinctive and they, they stood out and they excited people. But then that yeasty fermentation flavour, you know, people are a little bit, you know, fermented, obviously fermented foods that have that fermentation profile do tend to polarise because it's not obviously enough uh, that it's meant to be sour um, the way that a sour beer is, um, but then it's just that little bit too fermented to be the clean lager, you know, is it one in that betwixt and between space? Yeah, I, I mean, Brian can probably answer this better than, than me, but even, you know, those estuary styles still need balance. And, and I, I think too often smaller uh, brewers who are doing a wheat beer wouldn't get that balance right and it wouldn't be crisp enough. And so you'd end up with a quite a cloying example of, of an estuary beer and, and, it, and it really isn't drinkable you know I mean it's not doesn't have drinkability is what I'm saying so you, again you'll you'll have one but it's it's just too fulfilling you, you just can't have more of them and so that's why it, it doesn't tend to grow as a um, as a style I think so what is uh, should we be looking at what the next um, Franken style is for you know, hybrid style merge style evolving style is as the future of beer or should we be looking back over you know in, into the history books and I know that you've been struck by a, a new beer style recently Brendan um, that is a very old style but it's really newly rediscovered should we be looking for old classics to uh, to, to resurrect 
Yeah, I feel like it's going to be both, like look back but also see what's available, what new tools, whether it be ingredients or technology, um, is, a, is available. Um, but certainly there's tens of thousands of years worth of brewing history there which would be somewhat foolish as disregard and, and not, not look into um, what could be drawn look, from looking backwards. Um, I think it's going to have to be a com combination of both. And um, I, I, th I think... As small brewers, it needs to be, I hope there's lots of small brewers out there looking for what the next thing is after hoppy. Um, and I just say hoppy broadly, not just hazy, I just lump them together. Because um, at some point, the really big houses, the big breweries will be able to get a hop flavour not dissimilar to what a small brewery can and package it up and make it really cheap. And then if we've just all gone down this road of hoppy hoppy, um, what's left when you can get it from a big brewery cheaper and just as good and longer shelf life and all that stuff. They can't yet, there's technical challenges, but if they want to, they'll solve those if it gets big enough, right? Brian, where do you, th looking forward or looking back? Yeah, a little both, I agree with Brendan. Um, you know, I think that you have to look to the classic styles for inspiration, see why those were, became classic styles in the first place, whether it was due to the water, or the malt, or the hops, or the yeast, whatever they had locally. Uh, but then exploring new flavors is always going to be on the horizon. So I remember uh, listening to a podcast about Greg Noonan when he developed the Hazy or uh, New England IPA, but also he did Black IPA at the same time. And Black IPA didn't stick. Uh, it was popular with brewers, and when I drink it, I love it. But with the general public, it didn't go anywhere. But uh, if anyone's brewing a black IPA out there, let me know and I'll come and drink some. <laughs> Sean? I, I, think, I think there's still going to continue to be this narrowing of um, alcohol content, um, more so because as excise continues to go up, that is just naturally going to be a, a ceiling that, um, that brewers can... can play with to still have lots and lots of flavour but achieve a, you know, a cost price for the consumer that's still palatable. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think that um, if, well, if, in, if excise continues to increase, um, you, you're not going to be able to get 8, 9, 10% beers out there at any volume that you can afford to buy anymore. I mean, it's going to be... $120 a case or $150 a case and whatnot. So I think the challenge for, you know, and you, we had some um, talks earlier about um, no alcohol and low alcohol and that growing market of, of 18 to 25s now, that that's what they're looking for. They're not, they're not necessarily looking for alcohol and, and are on more of a health kick. So I think you'll see... Um, Lots of different styles trying to play in that area where it's it's between three and a half and five percent, but still with big banging flavour, still with as much hops as you can enjoy and as much bitterness, and so getting that balance right um, over the next couple of years in that smaller alcohol bracket, I think, will be the the challenge for the smaller guys. Yeah, um, look, I don't love that idea, uh, to be honest. <laughs> I didn't say I liked it. <laughs> um, and, and, I don't, and I don't know if, if, in terms of the small brewery, it, it, um, we need to pay so much attention to excise. I mean, we do already. Like, I think as an Australian industry, we've compromised based on our excise. Um, it's 
based on strength rather than volumetric. I would actually argue that Australian brewers are some of the best you know, sub 4% brewers in the world because we've had to be, or you've had to be, I can't claim credit for that, um, but that excise pressure has actually created a whole specialty that doesn't exist in most other parts of the world. Yeah, is that, um, but even our IPAs, they're all just IPA, they just tick over into enough to be kind of called IPA or, or they might just be an American stronghold and you call them an IPA, whatever that case may be, because of the... Um, because of our tax regime here versus how other countries are. So I've seen the effects of it already, but I, I don't know as small brewers who, like, those seven, eight, nine, 10% beers are rarely, if ever, going to be your rock star that your whole business is gonna be um, driven around, like selling boxes and boxes of the same 10% beer. So as a one-off, I think, I'd like to think that you just design the beer the way you want it to be and you charge accordingly and if you do a good job, people will pay for it. Yeah, I don't see anything wrong with Belgian quadruple at 10 or 11%. <laughs> well, that's, that's a low alcohol beer, technically. <laughs> but we are also seeing the rise of the abstainer and the sober curious and the, the many other um, terminologies that are going to be very confronting to the alcohol industry. Can you make beer... Um, that is interesting and flavoursome and has all of the uh, um, enjoyment that a, a beer with alcohol has without alcohol. Do you think that it is the same Not product? enjoyment. What's that? <laughs> you can't make no, it with enjoyment. enjoyment. So uh, do we drink beer for, for the alcohol? Oh, it's part of it. Um, sure it is. You know, I, I always... I'm a curious fellow. I'm always drinking low alcohol or no alcohol beers. And my usual comment is needs more alcohol. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a challenge. I think that alcohol is going to continue to, uh, as the generations get older, I think, I think people will drink less and less or they will want to consume less alcohol in, as, a, as a whole over, over, a, over a week, over a year. Um, so I think that's going to continue to be a challenge because it's the, it's the flavour enhancer in in beer and a significant part of it. So, um, yeah, I, I think that there's going to be some new challenges out there for brewers around flavour and alcohol, yeah. I might throw it over to the audience. Does anyone have any questions for this panel of old men? <laughs> it's a relevant panel. It's a very relevant panel. Love hearing you fellas talk about Redback. It's great. Just harking about the old days. Anyway, um, this is more a, a question surrounding customer observation and consumerism of, because you guys brew classic styles, that's what you've built your breweries around. Is it kind of a prevalence nowadays that a customer knows exactly what a beer is and they have this perception that, no, this is the right way that a beer is, anything else is wrong? I remember back in maybe two, 10 years ago, I drank a chocolate porter. This doesn't have chocolate in it. I must be wrong. Not the brewery's wrong. But is there a way that of like, taking old styles and having to disguise them as something new, or do you just blatantly go, no, this is what this beer is, and it's kind of an education process as well as not, you know, letting someone else dictate what you do? Um, look, I, I think that, um, you know, when, when I built White Lakes, it was really, um, at, at the time, it, it didn't... It wasn't something that we necessarily set out to do. We, we set out to create 
beers that, that we like to drink. And um, I guess as that evolved and we started um, doing some of the more traditional styles and, um, you know, we're, we've got a team of brewers that love hops as much as the next guy. And, um, but um, coming back to a... a um, I guess a more refreshing and drinkable um, beverage that you can have a couple of is, is also rewarding as well. So um, to answer your question in particular, I, I think that um, people certainly have a lot more knowledge nowadays, um, but it, it's also in being better educated, they also realise that there's, you know, it, it's not a, a black and white line that, that you're making. Um, when you're making a particular style and, and brewer's influence and nuance and whatever can actually take a, you know, a, um, uh, take a, a pilsner and add some, a, a great hop top note to it and turn it into something that's quite magnificent just because it's not no longer a bohemian style or German style pilsner. It doesn't um, necessarily make it a bad beer. Yeah, I think it's um, just a communication piece. If you choose English pale ale, if you make an English pale ale and it's like a, you know, right off the bat stock standard one, that's what you call it. If you make the same beer and you use a spice or another ingredient, you label it accordingly um, with transparency and you describe what you're doing and why you're trying to do it and people will either enjoy that or not. One of the things that I still really love doing is, is events, structured beer dinners, tastings, that kind of thing, is it is a lot about knowledge transfer, where you're trying to help people understand a style better, uh, pairings with food, or, or, um, or the variances of a style, like you say. So um, it's always great to see some, an expression on somebody's face when they find a beer they've never tried before, or they didn't know something about it, and then say, wow, I really like that. Um, yeah, I just have a, um, uh, for my own personal curiosity, I guess, uh, on the topic of whether classic styles are, are coming back, um, would you say that uh, straight traditional styles seem to be re-emerging or is it um, putting a modern spin on a classic style, reinventing it for a, for a new audience that seems to be uh, getting more attention? Like, uh, I, yeah, reinventing it, I guess. I, I think that we've, we've come through this last 10 years and everyone's, you know, everyone talks about the lupulin shift where people's thresholds have changed back from, you know, when little creatures opened and... and Brendan with, with Feral, and, and we're now, our expectations really are for more flavour, I think. So um, if that is a, a trend that's happening and, and there are, you know, more Pilsners or classic styles, I think you'll find that they will be hoppier um, because that's just something as, a, as, a, um, as beer drinkers now that, that we expect and, and, and also um, I think it, you know, people relate that to, to quality you know, quality ingredients and quality additions. So. I think it's a perspective thing. Um, if you go back 20 years, you couldn't buy any classic beer styles at all, really, in Australia. You just bought the beer from Swan Brewery, and that was all there was available. Right here now, today, we could buy a great big chunk of classic beer styles of almost any sort. So in terms of are they coming back, they absolutely have compared to where they were in this country. Um, so the diversity available to us is far, far better, and I think that's to be applauded and just to not, um, you know, not just get caught in the weeds of, oh, it's all just one type of beer. 
overall, thinking back over, you know, 20, 30 years, we're far, far ahead in terms of classic beer styles, all beer styles being available for us to drink now. G'day, this is a question for all three of you. Um, what traditional or old style would you like to see more of on shelves? Personally, I really enjoy the smoked beer style and the feral smoked is very, very nice. Grozitsky. <laughs> well, that's what I was alluding to before and you didn't take the bait. Do you want to talk about it? Oh, I guess we were just talking last night about um, a beautiful beer that I tasted, never tasted in, out in the real world, I suppose. We tasted judging here couple of days ago. It was amazing. I didn't know. It was, it's effectively a smoked low alcohol wheat beer um, with just very delicate esters, lovely mouthfeel. And as we've established, low alcohol smoke and uh, yep. <laughs> uh, wheat beers are just the things that sell. Yeah. He, I mean, the question was, what would I like to see? No. What? What's, what's in your beer fridge at the moment? What have you been drinking during the week? And it can't be your own brewery or brewery that you used to own. I'm drinking a bit of Bolter these days. What else? Um, I'm still drinking a bit of Creatures, um, Creatures Pale, as a, just an old, um, I guess. Um, yes. No, I actually don't drink a lot of beer these days. Brian? I won't name any breweries in particular, because they're all really good. Maybe you understand why I served as Wabo president so long. But <laughs> oh, well, what I really like is local beer. So I travel a lot as a gypsy brewer. So when I'm in Margaret River, I look for Margaret River beers. And when I'm in the Great Southern down there looking at their beer. So now I'm in Perth and I'm enjoying the local beers here. Yeah, I've, I've got a, a smattering of, of local breweries, um, whether that be Eagle Bay. Um, I've got some Boston stuff, some other side. It's mostly my own stuff, I think, just because of the cost upside. <laughs> um, but every now and then, I also got given a gift of a, um, a nice wheat beer uh, all the way from um, uh, Germany by the, uh, the Krohn's guys um, recently. So that's um, sitting there for my, um, my weekend this weekend. But. That's unfortunately all we've got time for. So please, a big round of applause for our panellists, Brendan Burris, Brian Fitzgerald and Sean Simons. Thanks to Bintani for making the recording of this panel discussion possible. Bintani, supplying the brewing industry with a wide range of quality brewing ingredients since 1995.